Good morning. I'm wrapping up our series called Summer in the Psalms. If you want to see more of those, you can find them on our YouTube page. And today we're looking at a kind of psalm called Royal Psalms. Now, in the ancient world, everybody wanted their king to be strong and powerful so he could protect them and provide for them. They wanted their kingdom to expand and to grow in prestige and honor. And this is a very normal thing for people to desire. And in the Bible, what you find is that God promised the people of Israel that kind of king. He said they would have a king of kings and that he wouldn't just bless them, but through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Israelites love to sing these kinds of psalms, royal psalms. Now, what makes a psalm a royal psalm is if it has kind of three characteristics. Number one, if the psalm is written about a king of Israel, it's usually called a royal psalm. Or, number two, if a psalm is written by a king of Israel, it's usually called a royal psalm. And number three, if the psalm is written about God as king over Israel or king over the world, again, it's a royal psalm. They tend to extol or praise the promise or the rule of this king. Now, what's interesting about the psalm we're reading today, Psalm 110, is that this psalm is not just talking about a king, a promised king, but also about a high priest, Pontifus Maximus, a great high priest. Now, in the ancient world, it was common for the king and the priest to be the same guy, for those two offices to be unified in one man. And the priest king would represent the people to the gods and the gods to the people. And he would order order and rule over their worship and rituals. He would determine who was in and out, clean and unclean, and try to keep the gods happy through his sacrifices and his obediences to their commands, or at least keep them from being too angry so that they wouldn't destroy him and his nation. But in Israel, it was forbidden. You could not combine priest and king. That was illegal. There was a high priest from the line of Levi, and there was a king from the line of Judah. And you were never to mix the two offices because of the corrupting effect on the worship of God's people that political power would have. And so King Saul, King Uzziah, they both lost their kingdoms because they tried to play the priest. They mixed these roles. They both tried to make offerings as if they were a priest, and God punished them severely. But in this psalm, Psalm 110, David is saying that's exactly what God's going to give us. The future king, the future Messiah is not just going to be the great king of kings, but he's also going to be the greatest high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? And even more astonishing is how much the New Testament writers quote from Psalm 110. It's the most quoted chapter in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Psalm 110.1 is quoted over 27 times. In the New Testament, this was a central chapter in the Bible to explain and understand who Jesus was, what he came to do and where he was leading us. So let's read Psalm 110 together. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment on the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink From the brook, by the way, therefore, he will lift up his head. 
Now, this is such an important psalm to the apostles and to Jesus. It's worth our time studying. So let's see if we can understand what God is saying by summarizing the text. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make till I make your enemies your footstool. Who is speaking? Who's talking to whom? Who's the Lord talking to the Lord? What does that mean? Well, the father said to the son, God, the father said to God, the son, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Adonai, the father said to the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David is listening in on a conversation in the Godhead. By the spirit, David is listening to a promise the father is making to the son. He goes on to say, right hand and footstool. The right hand is the place of power. If you sit at the right hand of the king, you are his executive, his prime minister, his general, his CEO. You actively rule over the realm that you that the king has. And he says footstool. And what he's saying is, is that in the rule of this coming king, David, looking forward, every nation, every power will, every enemy of this king will be made his footstool. He will have dominion, rule, conquer over them. And he will do that, as we see, looking back on this psalm, in one of two ways. One, people will become his friends. He turns his enemies into friends by his grace and love and forgiveness that he offers by his death, burial, and resurrection. And they love the son. They kiss the son, like it says in Psalm 2, because they love his grace. They love how good God is. They love the Lord Jesus. Or two, they refuse his forgiveness that God is offering in his King Jesus. They continue in their treason and they face God's judgment. But one way or the other, he will sit at the right hand of the father until his enemies are made a footstool. Then he says, the Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, what what scepter? A scepter is a symbol of his power. It's an expression of his rule, his standard. It's his law. It's his governance. It's his will is done. And he says, midst of your enemies, this rule of this future king will be active. Right now, not just in the future. It will be global across the earth. Demons, angels, men, his mighty scepter will come out of Zion. What's Zion? Well, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Hebrews, we understand that Zion is the church, the true church, the true people of God. Christ is in heaven. The authority is in heaven. But the power, the rule, the scepter is manifested on earth through the church, through the proclamation of the gospel. It's through the church, the armies of God, that his kingdom is established. And the church will therefore go out into all the world, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the rule and reign of Jesus will grow. And that's why we're here today, on the other side of the world, 7,500 miles away from Jerusalem, the ends of the earth, worshiping the Lord Jesus on Sundays, because his scepter has gone out on the earth through the church, the church passed, And we have been brought into his kingdom. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Holy garments. The people of God are armed with holiness. They're arrayed out on earth with holiness. They're bright and pure and righteous. They're without guilt or shame. If you are in Christ, your sins have been washed away. Your guilt has been removed. You've been declared innocent and you're free to go. God has washed away your guilt for your sins. And now you are holy before him, ready to serve him and obey his laws. And he gives you his Holy Spirit. The Spirit, it clothes you 
And it gives you power. The Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that desires to love God and obey him. He gives you strength. He restrains sin inside of you. He gives direction to your life. This army is arrayed in holy garments, the Holy Spirit, which Jesus poured out starting at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. He says, freely on the day of your power. That could also mean when your armies are gathered or the day of your power. Either works. But what he's saying is we are living or this king will come and he will bring about an age where the spirit's power will be poured out. And we see that in the book of Acts. The disciples are told to wait. The 150 are told to wait. They were given the command to go make disciples of all nations. And yet they're told to wait in Jerusalem until the spirit is poured out in power. And so now the people of God filled with the spirit of God are spreading out all over the world. And we are volunteers because we love Jesus. There's no God who's like him. There's no king who's like him. Nobody loves us like him. Nobody forgives us like him. Nobody's near like him. Nobody has more wise and just and good laws than he does. Nobody offers a better access to the Father than he does. Nobody gives more power than his spirit. Nobody can give us a better name and a better adoption than he can. We are freely arrayed in his holiness because of our love for Jesus. And he says it's like the morning dew. The dew, morning, youth. Looking back, we see what David is looking forward to. This mysterious presence of Christians across history, across time, in every generation, in every nation. We see God's people there, like dew in the morning. Where did they come from? How do you explain it? That no matter what the culture is that the gospel confronts, no matter how bad it is, how broken the hearts of the homes, how broken the societies and cultures are, when the gospel comes in, hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of people receive Christ and the kingdom expands. Was it the strong arm of man that did it? No. Was it father's will that made their sons Christians? No. Was it some sort of government top-down thing? No. It's not like the rain that you see the clouds coming and they pour down their dew and you know where the water comes from. This is mysterious, like the dew in the morning. Everywhere you look, God's people are like dewdrops, fresh and bright, full of life. On the mountains, in the hills, over the grass, in the academy, in suburbs, in cities, on soccer teams. God's people appear. They're young and old and black and white. His army is arrayed for him. Just like the dew, which mysteriously appears from the womb of the morning, so the youthful army of Christ seems to come out of nowhere, generation after generation. I mean, did anybody foresee the Jesus revolution? Probably not. But there you are in the 70s looking around America, and his dewdrops, bright and shiny, are everywhere. This is the age that you and I live in now, when the day of his power is being manifested. And that makes him the great king, the Magnus Rex. He goes on to say that he's not just a great king, Magnus Rex, but he's also a great high priest. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. David hears the father take an oath. He says this future king is going to be a priest, but a new kind of priest of a new order. Better promises, better forgiveness. He's going to be a better covenant keeper. This is a high priest that's going to seem to come out of nowhere. And this is like Melchizedek, who is an interesting figure in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, which is full of genealogies, Genesis is all about the genealogies. This person's father was this person's with this person's follower. I mean, anybody who's got value in the book of Genesis has got a genealogy. 
And yet this guy Melchizedek, he shows up, shows up out of nowhere. De, uh, uh, Abraham went off and fought with five kings, defeated them. He came back, and as he was coming through Canaan, this mysterious king of Salem showed up. King of peace, Salem is peace. His name is Melchizedek, which means prince of righteousness. And he has no father, no mother, no beginning, no end. He shows up and he's gone. And he is a priest of the God Most High. He's a real, honest-to-goodness priest. 400 years before there was even a priesthood in Israel, before Levi was even alive. And this priest offers bread and wine, and he's so great that Abraham offers him 10%, a tithe, as an offering to the one true God. And just like that man showed up out of nowhere and was this great high priest, so this coming king will be just like that offering us a better way to the Father. He says in verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Execute judgment among nations? This priest is going to expand his borders every day. He's going to execute judgment among the nations Every day. What does that mean? He's the chief. He's the chief executive officer over all of creation. He's running the world. He will be the king of this world. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And as such, as the king of kings, when demon gods of pagan nations oppose him, he will destroy them. When wicked kings and lawmakers resist the one true king, his law, his people, He will judge them and execute them in his wrath and shatter their kingdoms. Just ask Persia, Greece, Rome, Assyria, Babylon, Stalin in Soviet Union, Hitler in Nazi Germany, Robespierre in in revolutionary France. Every man, every nation that sets itself up against God and tries to stop the expansion of the kingdom of God is torn down because no one can stop this king. Now, in the past... This king, the Lord of Israel, was their God, Israel's God, the one God for the one people that he selected, his holy chosen people. And for 1,500 years, this Lord and king ruled over Israel exclusively. God gave authority over all the other nations to lesser spirits. And when he divided the nations at Babel, the nations were given away. But when Christ came, he took back all that authority in heaven and on earth. All the crowns of the false gods were revoked. No more delegation. No more lesser gods. No more false gods ruling and deceiving nations. It's chief smashing time. And for the last 2,000 years, the one true king has been taking back every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he will continue until the entire world is his, until all his enemies are a footstool for his feet. How much has he conquered for the last 2,000 years? How much will he conquer in the next 2,000 years? His kingdom that he's building The Romans would have called it the Regnus Magnum, the great kingdom. And so if you're discouraged about the church today, and if you're discouraged about the country today, the Lord Jesus is not. As we see in this psalm, here's what he's like. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. He's not tired or discouraged. He's not taking a break or rest. He's not breaking out the wine. It's not time for a party. The party and the best wine will be enjoyed in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the wedding feast that's to come in the future. Right now, he's just drinking water. And that water's coming from the rivers of peoples and nations and demon gods that he's conquered. 
as he has set captives free, he's drinking along the way. And then he lifts his head and he looks forward to the next city, the next nation, the next family, the next person that he can save, that he can bring into the kingdom of light. This is a powerful masculine image at the end of this psalm. It's a look of strength and confidence and manliness. And many kings and generals and important men have tried to strike this pose, this confident, forward-looking pose like the rock in WWF. But these are just shadows. The substance, the real conqueror, the real king is Jesus Christ. Now, this is a summary of the text, and it's glorious. And for years, the Israelites were trying to figure out, who is this man? Because everything is promised to him. Who is this king? Where is he? Where is he going to come from? When is he going to show up? And Jesus knew that. But there was a mystery. How could David call one of his descendants Lord? How could the ancestor be less than the descendant? Since when did the children not honor the father, but the father honors the children? It was a riddle. It was a mystery. How could he be David's Lord, but be a descendant of David? And, David, and Jesus knew this riddle. So he asked the Pharisees, he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to Jesus, the son of David. And Jesus said to them, well, then how is it that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, and then this is quoting Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And nobody was able to answer him. How can he be David's Lord and David's son? doesn't make any sense. And the answer is the incarnation. Yes, Jesus is a son of David. He's a Davidson. He comes from the bloodline of David through Mary. His body comes from the lineage of David. However, his father is God the Father. His body may be from David, but his spirit is the Lord's. He is the God-man, the incarnated God. And in that way, David honors and worships his descendant, who is his Lord. Jesus knew who he was. And the disciples did not. But when he was raised from the dead and God publicly stated, this is my Messiah, they knew. This is the guy from Psalm 110. And everything that God said would happen to the Messiah happened. And that means everything else God promised in Psalm 110 will happen. And that means we can advance. We can make disciples of all the nations. We can go out. We can win. This is incredibly encouraging. And this is why it's quoted throughout the New Testament by the Lord Jesus, by the apostles over and over and over again. Who is this Lord of Lords? Who is David's Lord? He is the Magnus Rex, the great king. And that means Satan and all of his fallen angels, they can't stop him. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, quoting Psalm 110, And to which of his angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Did did, did God ever say to the angels, sit at my right hand? No, no. But in Psalm 110, he said that about the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, which means he's higher than the angels. He's higher than Satan. He's higher than the false gods. And that means if we have the guy who's got the most power on our side, we can't be stopped. And Jesus himself said that he was going to arrest and plunder Satan's kingdom. In Mark 3, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, take back the nations, free people from Satan, unless he first binds the strong men. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's what Christ did on the cross. You remember when Jesus was tempted on the high mountain by Satan and Satan said, hey, if you worship me, I'll give you all these nations. Jesus didn't say, hey, you can't offer those because they don't belong to you. For a moment, for a time, they did belong to Satan. But Jesus was going to take them. By worshiping Satan, he was going to take him away by his death, burial, and resurrection. And when he was raised from the dead, he took back the nations and the authority. And now nothing can stop his kingdom. Now he's plundering Satan's house. And that's why Paul writes in the New Testament, he disarmed the rulers. He disarmed the authorities. He disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. 
How did he disgrace them publicly? By raising Jesus from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicated him. He said, no, this is my chosen son, the man who will rule and reign over all nations, the judge. Everything he said, everything he did was true and right. And you should put your faith in him. They killed Jesus and tried to call him a false prophet. And God raised him back up and vindicated Jesus publicly. And then he disarmed them. He stripped from Satan and his demons the most powerful weapons they possessed on the cross. He took away their condemnation and he took away their power over death. Because Satan is always condemning us and, and, and judging us and our hearts condemn us and our culture condemns us. And through condemnation, we're enslaved and chained and manipulated and controlled. But in Christ, we're forgiven. When he died, I died. I deserve punishment. I deserve God's wrath, but I got it in Christ. When Christ died and got God's wrath, I got God's wrath, and all God's wrath has been poured out. And now there's no more condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. The sins that I've committed, the sins that I will commit, they were all paid for 2,000 years ago on that cross. And so now I can come boldly into the presence of God, asking for grace and mercy to help me. And that's why you see in Hebrews it says, Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through Death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, our God knows the way out of the grave. Our God conquered death. There's nothing that can be taken or killed that God cannot raise back up 20, 30, 40, 60 fold. He raised Christ up to show you that death can't stop you if you walk by faith. He shows you that he has the power over the grave. And so disarmed and humiliated, we are now sent out by this great king to proclaim the gospel to this world. And that means that we should learn to obey the king. What does this great king want us to do? He wants us to obey his commands. He wants us to learn how to obey everything he's commanded. He wants us to do it freely in the day of his power. And that's why 2 Corinthians says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war in the world as the world does. You know, the weapons of the, of the world, the, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world, but on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is an application that we can make right now in our lives from Psalm 110. If Christ is seated at the right hand of God, if he's truly in charge, then we need to sober up. We need to sharpen up and learn the commands of God. We need to tear down the strongholds that we have in our own minds that are still keeping us in darkness, folly, and sin by washing our minds by studying the Bible, studying God's word. We need to learn the commands of the king. This is what a disciple does. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're learning the commands of Jesus. You're learning how to obey everything he says in every area of life, every area of life, from economics to science to politics, war, family, marriage, money, loans, debts, crime and punishment, aliens, education, art. I mean, anything, technology, sexuality, psychology, depression, everything that you deal with, God wants you to think about it Christianly. He wants you to feel about it Christianly, and he wants you to do things Christianly. He wants you to tear down strongholds in your heart. Tear down things that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ. Take every thought captive, and then you will be capable of going and doing the same in the lives of the people around you. You can be a real help to them so that you can remove the speck of sawdust from their eye because you've been taught how to remove the plank from your eye. You can teach them how to build their life on the rock. You are salt and light 
because you've studied God's word and you've learned the, the commands of the king, the great king, Magnus Rex. And I want to encourage you to, to start with Christian doctrine. The word doctrine is often get a bad, it's got a bad connotation, but doctrines are just truths that we know that we're supposed to bite down on. Your mind is like a pit bull. It's supposed to bite down on the truth and hold it and love it and then live it out. And the truths of the Christian faith are passed on generation to generation. And one of the benefits of being in a literate society is that you can study God's word and learn the truths so that you have your own convictions. And so I recommend to you this book, Decide for Yourself. It is a theological workbook, which gives you a question and all the passages in Scripture that speak to that question. And then you work through it and you think about it, what it means, and you finish by writing a summary statement, which is, this is what I believe God is saying on this issue. And as you study and work through Christian doctrine, you will see clearer, you will feel better, you will know better what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. God will wash your mind. He'll tear down strongholds so that the king can reign inside of you, in your family, in your business, in your life. And then you can help other people come into the light. We are disciples of this king, students, and so we've got to read, we've got to study. This is just part of life. Now, I've gone through this with my uh, I've gone through this. My wife has gone through this. Our two oldest sons are going to go through this this year. And it's a powerful tool in our hands to practically learn how to obey this great king that we serve. And when I say that, you may be feeling like, well, that's that's a lot, man. I mean, I, I, that's for super Christians. And you start feeling condemned. and I'm not good enough. And I don't know the Bible. And I'm so flawed. And I'm so weak. And these are lies. Because Psalm 110 says that we have a new, better, greater high priest. Pontifex Maximus, the great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and he's without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Our king totally gets you. Our high priest, he knows your struggles. And he can give you exactly what you need. But I don't know the prayers. Don't worry, he does. But I don't have the right words to say. Don't worry, he does. But I don't know how to communicate what I need to communicate. I don't know how to think what I need to think. I, I don't know what to do. Don't worry, he will direct you. If you study his law and learn to obey his commands, start with, decide for yourself. If you have a question or an issue, ask your pastors. It's our responsibility to better equip you so that you can do every good work. And when you feel condemned for your failure and your sin, remember that your great high priest is offering you grace and mercy. Yeah, but I've sinned. Yeah, but he died for your sins. He paid for your sin. He's offering you better forgiveness. Yeah, but I'm just not sure that God likes me. No, no, no. The new covenant is a covenant of love. God loves you and he saved you even when you were his enemy by sending his son into this world. How much more will he love you now that you are his friend? He doesn't love you because you're good. He just loves you. And now that he does love you, the way you respond to love him back is obedience. And whenever you find yourself being condemned by your mind or the culture or our enemy, you just point back to our high priest who, in his name, we approach God. And when you're weary after struggling against sin, and then when you're weary after a long week of trying to walk in obedient faith and things are difficult and you need refreshment, come to our high priest, to the Pontifus Maximus, to the great high priest Jesus in the new order of Melchizedek, and he will give you refreshment. He'll give you bread and wine. Just like Melchizedek did when 
Abraham came back from defeating the five kings. He's all exhausted. And Melchizedek brought hot bread and the best wine. And Abraham ate the meal and was refreshed. Here's a high priest refreshing one of the saints. And Jesus does that for us. That's the Lord's Supper. When we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we're, we're participating in his body and his blood. And God renews us. He fills us with his spirit. He restores us in our fellowship. He energizes us so that we can go back out this week in obedient faith and build his kingdom. We have a Lord's Supper tonight here at Church in the Valley. Did you know that? Yeah, tonight at Church in the Valley we have a Lord's Supper. And you can sign up on our Church Center app. I want to encourage you to come. Be refreshed in your soul. Be filled with the Spirit. Be encouraged in your faith that our great King reigns, that our High Priest has washed away our sins, and that we're building an unshakable kingdom. And then go out this week renewed with a bounce in your step, just like the first Christians. So, we are building a regnus magnum, the great kingdom. Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful and receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our kingdom that we're building, that God is building, that we're a part of, that he promised David, that he confirmed when he raised Jesus from the dead, that he began to build in the first generation when the apostles spread out across the Roman world and brought the church, that he's been building for 2,000 years. This is the unstoppable, unshakable, everlasting kingdom. And that's why the first disciples were so confident and hopeful. Because they knew Psalm 110. They saw Christ raised from the dead. It confirmed Jesus' identity and all the other promises. And so all through the New Testament, they're constantly quoting Psalm 10.1. Psalm 110.1. Get jacked. Get pumped. Keep going. Don't give up. It's not in vain. Paul writes to the Corinthians. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I know that I'm going to be victorious as I bring the gospel to the Roman world. Because he's reigning and he's putting his enemies under his feet. And then when Paul got discouraged... He encouraged himself, even when things were going sideways and he couldn't quite see if his efforts were really producing anything of lasting value. He wrote this to the same church, the Corinthians. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Nothing they did was wasted. All of it was seed that would bear fruit in their lives, in the lives to come. Every act of faith builds the everlasting, eternal, unshakable kingdom. God doesn't waste any of it. Anything that you sacrifice, anything that you gave up, God will raise up and make it 20, 30, 40, 50 times more fruitful. This is the hope of this new king and kingdom. And this powered Christians beyond the first century. There are men like Latimer and Ridley. Great story. In the 1500s, as the Protestant Reformation spread out across Europe, these two pastors in England were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. People were getting saved. They were learning to read the Bibles and obey God's commands. They were being baptized in Jesus' name. They were breaking free from the shackles of Roman Catholicism, which was telling them that the only way they could be right with God is if they were good boys and good girls and they paid some money. And these men were telling them that's a lie. The grace of God is free. And so Bloody Mary... Queen Mary of the Scots decided she would round up these Christians in England and kill them. She told Latimer Wrigley, if you don't stop shepherding these people, if you don't stop preaching the free grace of God, I will burn you alive. And they refused. Think about these men. All their life they worked to build the church in England, and now they were going to be killed. All their life they've been working to, to gather the flock of God, and they were now going to be scattered. 
Was all of it a waste? Had their enemies stopped the king of kings from saving England? Here's what Latimer said to Ridley when they went to the stake. He said, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And what happened next? They were martyred. They were burned alive. And England was saved. Bloody Mary and her reign was judged by the Lord Jesus. And he tore her down. And in her place was another king who allowed pastors and teachers to proclaim the true gospel. The King James Bible was written so that the average person could know the word of God and learn to obey his laws. And the gospel spread and repentance spread like fire and reformation spread like fire in families and the economy grew and the politics stabilized and justice grew all through the 1600s. Where did that fire start? It started with those men's execution. Was their life in vain? No. Nothing you do is in vain when you do it in faith for this king, for this high priest, for this unshakable kingdom. And that gives us confidence to do what is right and true and endure and not quit and have joy. Just like David and Jesus and Paul and these men, they could see that the kingdom was growing and they were a part of it. And it is exciting. And so they didn't stop. And that's the kingdom you're a part of. But that means you have to throw off sin. That means you have to give up all those things that hold you back. And that's why, once again, based on Psalm 110, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Jesus and Paul and the apostles and Latimer and Ridley and all the saints of the past, since we're surrounded by all these people who believe in the coming kingdom and the conquest of this king, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance. Keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. Stay positive. The race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. And then Psalm 110.1, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was promised the throne, promised the nations, promised the kingdom, promised the people like dew in the morning. And he endured the cross and he got it. And he has made great promises to you. If you'll throw off your sins, if you walk in faith and obedience, if you'll give your wholehearted, full-throated, all-you-got faith to Christ, there are incredible joys set before you in this life and the life to come. How do I know what those joys are? you got to study the Bible. That's what we're pastors are for. We'll tell you what they are. What is God's promise to this? And what are some of God's promises? I want to know what God's promises are. We'll walk you through them. And then... Believe it, because Christ is the proof. So here are some next steps. If I take all my applications and I boil them down into some practical steps you can do, here they are. There are four of them. Number one, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time and be baptized. Take his name. Give up your name and your past and your old identity and receive him. Be adopted into his family. Receive his spirit of power and allow Christ to transform you and make you a part of his family, his kingdom, and his project. Number two, read and learn the law of God as it applies to every area of life. You're all facing situations. You all have questions. There's all things that are going on in our culture, and you're like, what does God say about it? You must know his good, pleasing, and perfect will so that you'll know what to do. And how does a Christian come to know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? 
by transforming themselves with the renewing of their mind. And that means you take the Bible and you wash your mind through it. And I and Pastor Randy and Pastor Thad and the leaders at our church, we can help you do that at a pace that you can sustain. In a sweet, tasty pace where it's honey in your mouth and it's cold water on a hot day so that you can sink your roots deep and be a fruitful tree your whole life, just like Psalm 1 promises, if you'll meditate on his word. Do you know what God's word says about X, Y, Z? Disciples study and they learn from their teacher. Number two, number three, you've got to put your sin to death. And that means all those secret sins that you've been carrying for years, you've got to confess them. Confess them to the Lord and repent of them and be free. You've got to confess them to your brothers and sisters so that you can be healed. There's no condemnation. Nobody's looking to judge you or punish you. You confess your sins and you appropriate the power of the name of Jesus to push out of your life every demonic influence, to push out of your life the reign of sin, and to push out of your life the fear of man that keeps you enslaved in this world. Whatever it is that's dogging your steps, whatever sin you you can't quite put to death, Christ will give you the power to kill it so that you can run that race with joy, so that you can enjoy the blessing, so that you can build the kingdom. But you got to do this every day. Every day starts on your knees before the Lord, confessing your sin, receiving his forgiveness, hearing his word, eating the hot bread he gives you, learning to see the way he sees so that you can live the way he wants, and you build the kingdom day by day. And as we do that, our fourth practical application is build. Build marriages. Build families, businesses, schools, churches, cities, and cultures over time that are Christian, that honor Christ so that the faith can be passed on, so that the kingdom can grow. We're supposed to be culture makers. And we do this by doing everything in life as an act of worship to Christ. And here at Church in the Valley, we're trying to work on that project. We're trying to build for the future. We want to help you build families. We want to help you build businesses, help you build schools, and help you build culture and future churches that extend the kingdom of Magnus Rex. Here we are in SoCal. We're literally on the other side of the planet. If those men who read Psalm 110 in the first century, who had an occupied world to conquer, who were told, go make disciples of the nations, if those men read Psalm 110 and they had confidence to do it, and they were 2,000 years in the past, and now here we are on the other side of the planet worshiping their God, seeing all that Christ has done, how no one has stopped his kingdom from advancing, how much more confidence and boldness should we have today, tomorrow, as we go out and proclaim Christ? We don't need 10,000s upon 10,000s of lukewarm, half-hearted people who are not really interested in the Lord. We just need a handful of hard men. We just need 150 men and women like that first century church who are all in for Christ. We just need the Spirit of God and a commitment to living out our faith day by day. What we need is we need people who are willing to fight for the right king for the right reasons, in the right way, with the right weapons. And when we have that, and we're building that here at our church, and we want you to be a part of it, wholehearted, full-throated, everything I got for Christ in this life, it's not going to be in vain. I trust him. We're going to build together. If we do this, that kind of faith overcomes the world. That's what First John says. That kind of faith overcomes the world. Faith in the great king, proclaiming forgiveness in the name of the great high priest, Building an unshakable kingdom that never ends. This is our confidence 
that Psalm 110 gives us. This is what the apostles believed. It's what Latimer and Ridley believed. It's what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. It's what we believe if we will pray and sing and stand on the promises of Psalm 110. Let's pray. Thank you for Psalm 110 and the promises. Thank you for your king, Father, Jesus. He is the greatest king. He is the greatest high priest. You are building the everlasting, eternal, unshakable kingdom. And I thank you that you've made us a part of it. For those who have not yet received your son, Jesus, remove from their eyes any blinders that are keeping them from seeing his glory and how wonderful he is and the promises he has. And God, save them. And teach us all how to walk in obedience to your word. God, please free us from the sins that we have in our lives. We confess our sins. We receive your forgiveness because of what you did to Christ 2,000 years ago. God, we have been forgiven, so free us from the bondage of sin. And God, help us here at Church in the Valley, in our city, build, build families and communities and businesses and schools and churches in the future that last. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.